National Archives podcast series. The Chevalier Dion, transgender diplomat at the court of George III, 1763-1777. Presented by Dr. Jonathan Conlon. She'd been living for five years with another equally poor widow in the parish of St. Pancras in London, when at the age of 81, that widow died. As she was preparing her best friend's body for the shroud, imagine her surprise when she discovered that she was in fact a he. The widow that she had been living with, apparently without realizing she was living with a man, was none other than Chevalier Deon, famous transgender diplomat wearer of the Order of uh, Saint-Louis, which he continued to wear after his transformation into a woman, and also famous in later life for displays of fencing, which he stroke she gave as a kind of almost novelty act at the time. My interest in Chalidion started rather indirectly. I was working on his alter ego, a figure I'll be coming back to later, the rabble-rising Reagan MP John Wilkes, who was very much a very male equivalent to the rather more uh, androgynous figure of Deon, but who was in fact a good friend of his and who was exiled to France at the same time that Deon was exiled to Britain. And so, as we'll hopefully see as I go along, there are many many areas in which the two mirror each other. Just to give you a sense of where the Chevalier came from, he was born into a relatively poor noble family based in the Burgundian town of Tonnerre. Now, Tonnerre in French means thunder, and there were many bad puns made by Deon in his own lifetime, suggesting that as a child of thunder, he was somehow destined to raise a ruckus in the world when he came of age. He was born at a time when the noblesse d'épée, the the nobility of the sword, was increasingly being sidelined, particularly at court, by the office-bearing nobility, the noblesse de robe. And this meant that he very much grew up with something of a chip on his shoulder. Nobility had traditionally, in all societies, been based on military service to the king. And yet here were these upstart bankers, contractors, financiers, and other people starting to rise up, using their connections at court, often through the king's mistresses, to gain noble titles for themselves. And one of the classic examples being the Marquise de Pompadour, about which more later. For someone whose family was in decline, this somehow seemed wrong. The aristocratic code of honor based on military service was being honored in letter, but not not in spirit. And the future did not look very bright for this model of military-based aristocracy that the Deon clan clung to. Military service was bred into the noblesse de l'épée, and indeed the Chevalier Deon earned his distinguished military medal through serving in the king's dragoons. And again, in French, a dragoon is a dragon, so a dragon coming from the city of thunder, again, Deon had license for many more bad puns as well. So he was sent out to Russia to work 
for as a kind of tutor, kind of or a reader to the Empress Catherine the Great of Russia, and he was sent out there as part of the king's secret network of agents known as the Secret du Roi under King Louis XV of France. This was a kind of shadow foreign policy that the king pursued as an individual alongside the official foreign policy that was being followed by whoever his prime minister or foreign minister at the time was. So at a time when in all countries the king's prerogative over foreign policy is being eroded and becoming more a question of of ministerial decision-making rather than the king, this Secret du Roi allowed Louis XV, Louis XV, a small area in which he could almost wind the clock back to the area in which kings decided matters of, of foreign policy, war and peace by themselves. It was, however, as we'll see, a very dangerous game to be playing at this time. The Secret du Roi was originally set up to try and convince Catherine the Great to support the French crown's candidate for the elected monarchy of Poland. As with any other secret agency through, through intelligence agency through the ages, these institutions tend to be set up with a particularly often quite narrowly defined goal in mind, and then it becomes impossible to suppress them or, or get rid of them however inefficient or ineffective they might be, because there you create a body of professionals who then are very effective at coming up with new reasons for their continued existence and for the continued privileges and income that they, that they derive from their, from their special duties and their intelligence activities. This was certainly the case of the Secret du Roi. After Poland, it was, it was increasingly turned towards projects in Denmark, trying to control who was, king of, who was king of Denmark and control Danish politics. And then in our period, it was turned much more dangerously against Britain. The policy of the Secret du Roi in the wake of the catastrophic defeat that France suffered in the Seven Years' War, which ended in 1763, was to prepare France for a war of revenge. And to do this, the Chevalier d'Eon was to act as a liaison, a diplomatic liaison between spies who would reconnoiter the southern coast of Britain for possible landing points for a French invasion. And he would provide those agents with a contact, someone they could deliver their reports to, who would then funnel the information back to Versailles, someone also who could help them if they got into trouble. D'Eon in order to have this, this position, had an official diplomatic posting, which was as minister plenipotentiary, in which he was appointed to in 1763. He was therefore minister plenipotentiary is the highest diplomatic rank. He was, he was the ambassador, admittedly for a very short period in 1763. He managed to rise in the space of one year from the lowly rank of secretary to the previous ambassador, the Duc de Nivernais, to being ambassador himself. And there were many people at the time who saw this mercurial rise and what followed and saw it as a case of hubris, a case of success going to his head and maybe even causing his head to turn, as the French would say, making him mad or insane. His glorious rise was due partly to the, to the fact that he enjoyed good favor with a disgraced former prime minister, the Duc de Breuil, who clearly enjoyed the confidence of Louis XV and who Louis XV charged with running his Secret du Roi. Thanks to this connection, he'd been sent out in 1762 when the peace treaty ending the Seven Years' War was being negotiated, and he was successful and, and did a, a good enough job to be given the great honor of carrying the ratified treaty back from London to Paris, to carry a treaty, the final ratified copy, at the end of a war in the 18th century was a, was a great honor. 
and one which he was obviously very proud of. Unfortunately, what happens is he's appointed Minister Plenipo to the court of St. James, and literally within three or four months, he's told that he's recalled. He gets his letter de rappel, and he's told to make way for a much more fitting, at least in the aristocratic sense, replacement in the form of the Comte de Guerchy. Unfortunately, the Comte de Guerchy is someone that Deon has encountered before in a small skirmish during the Seven Years' War, in which, again, Guerchy has failed to live up to the aristocratic models of, of military service and has shown cowardice in the face of the enemy, at least as far as the Chevalier Deon is concerned. So these two people have a past. This past quickly comes to the surface, and Deon refuses to honor his, his lettre de rappel, he refuses to go back to Versailles and, and hand in his position, and he also begins a pamphlet war with his replacement, Guerchy, something which is incredibly embarrassing for France, to have your two diplomats in another country fighting each other uh, in such a public manner. In October 1763, things get even worse. Guerchy invites Deon to a dinner. The next day, Deon and several other guests complain of food poisoning, and Deon becomes convinced that he survived, narrowly survived a poisoning plot by Guerchy. This causes even more pamphlets to break out, and it starts to get really rather serious. Deon is told to come back to Paris now, not to Versailles. Coming back to Paris is obviously quite a disgrace because it's not the court. The court is at Versailles. If you've been a good diplomat, you come back from your mission. You immediately go to see the king at Versailles. You don't go to Paris. This is a code way of saying he's going to go to either Fort-l'Evêque, Charenton, or the Bastille, one of the prisons where you put troublemaking diplomats to cool off for a while, along with playwrights and other pamphleteers who have gotten into trouble with the king or libeled the king or his mistresses in some way. Wisely, he refuses again to go back and starts to live a kind of life on the run within in England, constantly trying to appeal to British public opinion in order to defend himself from attempted kidnap by his bosses in France. The explosion comes in 1764 when he publishes his Lettres Mémoires et Négociations Particuliers. This is the second edition. It was very successful, as I'll just get on to in a second, published in 1765. At the time it came out, although it was written in French, it was not translated into English, it was a success to scandal because for a diplomat to publish his diplomatic correspondence, which was, as we all know, normally traveled by special bag, was often done in code, and was certainly not seen as, was very much seen as, as property of the king, a matter for the king's eyes, or at least his king and his minister's eyes only, to publish them was outrageously shocking. Indeed, one man, Captain Robert Digby, wrote to the MP George Selwyn saying that he had been struggling unsuccessfully to get a hold of the book because although Lord Holland had one, he was having to lend it out by the hour. It was so popular. As you can see, there's already a sense of Deon playing the, the wild man from the mountains, from the city of Tonnerre, the dragon of Tonnerre, where he says, excuse me, a, sol a soldier is a bad courtier. So again, he's playing on this idea of I'm, I'm not someone who's going to be in favor of the course. I'm not polished. I'm not polite. I don't do things by the rules. I follow my own code, code, code of honor, a code of honor that through some curious quirk of fate, the court itself and my king himself are no longer honoring. This is published in March 1764. And although 
none of the seriously compromising and potentially explosive material that Dayon has is included in this, it does send a clear warning shot across the bows of the French foreign ministry and of the king. If Dayon was prepared to publish letters back and forth with the French foreign ministry and with Gershi, disagreements about back pay that he's owed and other calls for his chip on his shoulder, he's owed money for his service in Russia that hasn't been paid. There are disputes with with his replacement, Gershi, about how much money he's been spending on wine, for example. He does come from Burgundy, after all, and he has been using that Burgundian wine to aid his own foreign, his own diplomacy. So even though there's quite a mundane, almost, uh, almost rather dull side to some of the correspondence here, the suggestion always in the background is that Dayan will publish the really good stuff and doesn't get much better than the letter he has signed by Louis XV himself as a kind of get-out-of-jail-free card, a card saying, you, my servant Dayan, are going to Britain on secret service for me personally. This letter could be shown to anyone in France and would, would get him out of any kind of trouble whatsoever. It would also mean that France would look very bad if the letter, this letter and not to, not to mention the other letters, the reports back and forth to the agents reconnoitering the southern coast of Britain were to fall into British hands. Even before the publication, there's already some evidence, and this is one of the sources I found here in the, in the archives, written by the then head of naval intelligence, Egmont to George Grenville, who shortly became prime minister, reporting intelligence he's receiving from what he described as a very extraordinary person, and Dayon was, if nothing else, a very extraordinary person, suggesting that the French were determined to build up their navy again and, and prepare for an invasion. It has to be said that the whole idea of a, of a French invasion happening so soon, and certainly any plans the Secret du War had for a war of revenge, was cloud cuckoo land. The Seven Years' War had left the French it, uh, the French Fisc so heavily indebted that they were still paying off the debts in 1789 when the French Revolution happened. And it was this war and the inability of the French state to, to package the debt and in a way that incurred low rates of interest, like the, the very low rates that the English state was having to pay when it was paying off its war dates that helped bring about that revolution in the first place. In the book, he delivers a number of charges or reasons why he's no longer in favor with the court. He's very much got a persecution complex. And for a historian, this is a problem in the sense that he does have a tendency to see conspiracies everywhere. And in some cases, he's correct, but in many cases, he's not. One of the reasons he says he's not, he's not in favor is because he has demonstrated that Gershi, son excellence, knows well how to calculate a snide reference to Gershi complaining about how much money he'd been spending on wine and on his kitchen, but does not know how to write. This is a, a reference to one of the embarrassing letters published in his memoir, which came from the foreign, foreign minister, the Duc de Pralin, to him, Dayan, saying, oh, I dread receiving the dispatches of your replacement, Gershi, because he can't write for Toffee, but what can we do? He's the best we have available to come and serve in London. This was obviously very embarrassing to Pralin and obviously very embarrassing to, the, to his own, um, to his ambassador as well. So there's a sense here in which there are a lot of, of personal charges being made and also a sense in which also he's heavily larding his, his account with references to classical authors. He's not someone who wears his learning very lightly. He had served as 
as one of the king's censors shortly before going to war and was very proud of his learning, uh, very proud, exceptionally proud indeed. The French response to this and to his troublemaking was that all this might do very go down very well in London, but was unwise in a man who would one day have to bear account, give an account of himself back in Paris. And this letter for me as someone who's, who's interested in John Wilkes was very revealing indeed in another part of this letter, Saint-Foy, who's, who's head of the secretariat at the French Foreign Ministry, says, what are you doing, Deon? Are you trying to faire le Wilkes? Are you trying to do a Wilkes? A reference to John Wilkes, the troublemaking, king-libeling journalist who had had to flee to France after publishing uh, a libel against the king's ministers in 1763 in number 45 of his periodical in North Britain. So what Saint-Foy is saying, well, yes, you can do this if you want in London, but you've got to realize that one day you'll have to give a good report of yourself. And you, even though you might be in Britain, are not an Englishman. You are a Frenchman. Dayan's response was quite straightforward, which is the Englishman, superior in all his majesty to the Roman public itself by his wonderful constitution, by his love for truth and passion for justice, wants to know everything and wants to judge everything for himself. So he's very much Dayan saying, I'm not writing this for the king. It's not about giving account to the king or to you in France. It's about the Englishman. And the Englishman is a kind of stand-in for abstract justice and for a kind of higher tribunal of absolute truth. Let the Englishman therefore read the, the English translation if he can't read it in French. There wasn't actually an English translation, but he's being hopeful. But let him judge not in French, but in English. So he turns that letter against Saint-Foy, saying, let the Englishman read in French, but judge in English, in an English spirit. In other words, judging truth, not judging saying black is white just because the court says it is, which is what I think he means by not thinking in a French way. Let him decide um, if a young captain of dragoons, a chevalier of Saint Louis, minister plenipotentiary of a great king, does not understand what honor means. So there, he's very much playing on this why I think to a historian of Anglo-French relations is so interesting, is where people start thinking about what it's possible to say or even think in Britain and France at the same time. Certain things are sayable and thinkable one side of the channel that apparently are not. And Dayon, in this case, is appealing to uh, some future world in which you will be able to think in the same way on both sides and be able to write and publish in the same way on both sides. For George III, this was all very upsetting, and he tries to chivy his, his prime minister. After all, the king is the king's, the king's minister. He tries to put some backbone into George Greville, who is both in terms of the no, his position, the nobility, and also in terms of the amount of support he has in the House of Commons, not in a very strong position to throw his weight around. But the king says to him, I'm very worried about this. I want you to do much more to prosecute Dayon for publishing this and for giving an making an example of him in a way that I wish had been done in the case of Wilkes and which I want to be done now. And he's kind of praising him at the same time. He's kind of like the kind of coach to a boxer saying, I praise your firmness and spirit and you know, you've got this, you can do it, come on, go for it. And at the same time, over on the other side of the palace, the queen is doing the same thing to one of her ladies of the bedchamber, 
again, trying to get the message out that we, King and Queen, we want you to go after Dayon much more enthusiastically than you are. The King George III is unusual in that whereas his grandfather, King George II, was more or less able to recognize the sad truth, which is that in 18th century Britain, it's the ministers who are the kings, not the monarchs. That's a quote from George II himself. George III was trying to, again, himself, almost in the same way that Louis Cairns was, trying to rewind the clock and adopt a policy of what was called the king, his own minister. In other words, that the king should set policy, which was really winding the clock back more or less till, till 1714, if not, not even earlier. Grenville's response is relatively straightforward, if measured, and saying, well, sire, you've got to realize that um, if this goes wrong, it's going to be rather uncomfortable and painful for everybody. Among the solutions that the cabinet bat around, the ideas of how to deal with Dayon, um, one of the ideas was to take a warrant, in this case, from the leading magistrate of the time, Sir John Fielding, and seize Dayon's papers and then hand them over to the French, which would obviously be help the French out and help the English by by softening a what was quickly becoming a diplomatic incident. The other option was to extradite Dayon, but they were found no decent legal precedents for sending someone out of the king's realms. Another possibility was to pass a small bill in the House of Commons which would give diplomats like Gershi special protection, so that as it were, yes, English, the right of free speech, obviously had a long history in Britain and was very closely guarded by the ministers, but you would create a sort of special category of protected person, in this case diplomats, who against whom you could not say anything you wanted, who would enjoy special protections. It was pointed out, however, that any such act could not be retrospective. So yes, it would prevent a future Dayon, but wouldn't help you solve the current Dayon crisis you're dealing with. The other possibility was just simply to look the other way and allow the French to kidnap him in a case of what we would call extraordinary rendition. On the 23rd of May, the French Prime Minister Choiseul sent a small ship over to Gravesend, and agents were indeed, constables were sent into London to try and bundle the Chevalier d'Eon into a carriage, get him to Gravesend, and get him into uh, either the Bastille or Charenton. Charenton is where you put people if they're if you want to try and suggest they're insane. Uh, Bastille is for for normal uh, miscreants. However, Dayon gets advance word of this and is not captured. This would have been again rather worrying thing for the English ministers to have allowed, in that in 1744, a previous renegade French diplomat, the Marquis de Fratou, who had also, as it were, gone rogue, had been kidnapped by the French authorities, and was indeed still sitting in the Bastille at all the time this was happening, and indeed died in the Bastille in the 1770s. That, however, had caused, was seen as a great cause of embarrassment to, to the British at the time, the idea that British liberties might have been the birthright of all Englishmen, but apparently could not be extended to those who had sought refuge in our country. It was seen as a great source of shame. So none of these options, extradition, allowing him to be kidnapped, passing a law, or simply seizing his papers by a warrant, offered a good solution. The reason why there would be so much clamor and uneasiness was precisely because exa almost exactly eight months before, there had been a huge ruckus about the seizing of John Wilkes's papers under what was called a general warrant, a warrant which does not name the person who is to be arrested. After the publication of North Britain number 45, the famous issue that libeled the king's 
ministers, a warrant had been issued to arrest the printers, publishers, and authors of North Britain number 45. That warrant was used to hoover up of about 45 different people, some of whom had had nothing to do with publishing, printing, or, or writing it. And that's exactly why it was then seen as such a dangerous precedent. A, general, a warrant for someone's arrest should name the person to be arrested, should not be seen as a carte blanche to wander around town picking up whoever you want. So there was concern that this whole warrant question would be aroused again. And indeed, the connection between Wilkes and Dayon was such so obvious to people at the time that there were prints done suggesting that the two might marry. So the, the two things that Dayon was trying to appeal to was one, this idea of English public opinion, which he almost saw as, as, as equal to an idea of truth or justice in a very abstract sense. It was very flattering, very clever in the sense that he was flattering those he needed to protect him by saying, I know I can trust you to be trust, to be just, and to be fair. And this very much flattered the Wilkite mobs in particular, who at various crucial points protected Dayon's house from attempts to kidnap him, and also went round, and whenever the French ambassador was trying too hard to get him extradited, would just go round the French ambassador's house and smash all his windows. So that kind of backing was not just a question of appealing on an intellectual level, but was actually a way of, in which Dayon recruited English people. This is quite an achievement, considering he was doing all this in French, and indeed, I, I suspect he actually did not know English. So he was appealing to an idea of honor, his enemies, those ministers in France trying to capture him, were also appealing to a kind of higher authority, an authority higher than English law. And this was what was called droit de Jean, what we might um, translate today as, as a kind of early form of international law. Droit de Jean was the law which governed diplomatic relations, which gave diplomats certain immunities and special privileges. And yet in this time of, of enlightenment, this age of Montesquieu and other thinkers, there was a suggestion that this kind of universal law, this kind of droit de gens, might become a template for international law in a more modern sense. And this was indeed the period in which key texts by French and Swiss thinkers like Emmerich de Vatel and Wickfort on the droit de gens were being published. And Pralin, the French foreign ministry, was certainly quite keen on this idea, this idea of, of creating a body of law which would stand above the individual corpus of law within particular countries. And indeed, when Hartford, the, the British ambassador to Versailles, had one of his weekly meetings with Pralin, he noted in this, in this letter to his boss back in London that Pralin kept on bringing up the issue of Dayon over and over again, someone against whom he seemed to entertain a particular resentment, and whom he wished to have delivered into the hands of the King of France, in other words, extradited, according to the laws of nations. And he's using the, the French's droit, droit des gens. And Hartford gives a very clever response, I think, which is to say, well, well, okay, but show me where, the, where is this law book of droit des gens? And Palin can't answer, can't answer it because this kind of law is still being thought about on an intellectual and a theoretical level and has yet to be, there's no United Nations, obviously, at this time to, that could ever serve as an as a institution to embody this form of law. And Hartford then goes into what would have any good Wilkite English patriot cheering, which is to say the laws of England are too precise to allow something so vague and theoretical to override them. On Hartford's part, it's not just patriotism, though it's also just recognizing that to hand Dayon over at this point would have been to put the, the ministry into peril.
I just want to, at this point, show two sources which came from, which I found inside this building, which show the kind of high-level collaboration which was going on in dealing with this particular spy scandal, in which, which I think are, are useful because they show the way in which diplomacy can actually make, in this case, what are often seen as inevitable enemies, Britain and France, the two governments get together to try and solve a problem and to try and recognize where their own interests lie. In this case, this is Harcourt, another, another British ambassador to France, saying that, again, every time he sees the Prime Minister Choiseul, Deon keeps coming up again and again. And Choiseul is making a big deal, saying, um, we as a power will not be able to do what you want, Britain, until you do what we want with Deon. And Harcourt finds this striking because, you know, Deon is, is a troublemaker, but he's not quite that important. And so he was tempted to ask, and he does, does ask, do you really want to have him back? And when Choiseul says yes, um, we should know very well what to do with him. In other words, stick him in the Bastille or in Charenton and let him rot for the rest of his life. Um, Harcourt says, uh, well, perhaps Deon might be able to help you out. In other words, he might be able to give you all the secret stuff that we've kind of worked out that he probably has, all the reports about the invasion, and help you out. And although done in a relatively elegant and diplomatic way, I think that's a real point of touche at which Chanzul is actually embarrassed and unable to come, to come back with an answer. Lest this all appear rather, rather one-sided, there was a real sense in which the English ministers at the time were in trouble. They realized that the Grenville ministry was not very broadly supported in the House of Commons and that there was a lurking eminence grise waiting to take, to take power who was much more successful at giving the, the British public opinion what they wanted. And that was Pitt the Elder. Pitt the Elder was widely credited with having won the Seven Years' War for Britain. He was also seen as someone who could tell King George III um, where to get off. And he was also seen as someone who understood and would protect the great civil liberties of Britain in a way that George III, especially when his own tutor Bute, the Scot Bute, was prime minister, had not done trampling over, for example, various questions of habeas corpus in pursuing Wilkes. So there's a sense in which both sides just don't want to rock the boat, and Deon is being a problem for both, both the French and the English. And Sandwich says to the uh, his says to the French ambassador that unless we help each other out, Parliament will intervene. And if Parliament knocks us out of power, you know that the next government's going to be that of Pitt the Elder, who will start another war with you. And this time you'll probably get an even worse peace than what you got last time. Considering how heavily indebted Britain was, it wasn't just, after all, winning a war doesn't mean you don't have to pay a huge amount of war debts afterwards. The Seven Years' War had cost a huge amount of money for the British as well, and so the idea that they were actually hankering or eager for a fight was even more, was well, not even more, but as, as ludicrous or as unlikely as the French wanting to have another war. But the French ministers at the time had an almost visceral fear of Pitt the Elder. He was a kind of bogey to them. They would do, they were terrified of the possibility that, that he might come into power. Fortunately, we now go forward a few years, the French managed to get someone over to talk reason to Charlie Deon. He doesn't publish his secret letters, and he's rewarded 
by a pension of 12,000 12, louis d'or a year, which is enough to keep him quiet and quite happy. This is, happens in 1766, and he, and he opts to continue paying, living in London because his pension is payable wherever he is in the world, and all seems to be going well. Unfortunately, royal, the royal fisc, the royal finances being in such a mess, pensions are not paid on a regular basis. I often think of that France in this period is a bit like Russia today. You know, salaries aren't being paid. It's a huge, mighty empire. It's gradually um, no longer able to really walk the walk, but it still wants to talk the talk. So there's a sense in which pensions are like this kind are not being paid. So again, Deon starts getting annoyed again. Interestingly, he continues right sending back dispatches in code to the Duc de Broglie, the head of the Sécré du Roi, in a rather sad way insofar as in the foreign ministry papers at the Quai d'Orsay, it's clear that, they've, that they're no longer using the same code books that they had when he was around. So they have to dig out the old code books to translate his messages and work out what he's trying to say to them. His idea is a, quite an interesting Wilkite idea, which is to play, as it says here, play Wilkes off against the court by getting the ministers to propose an act of parliament to, limited, to limit press freedom. This would be obviously be a shocking event to happen in a land of liberty like Britain, where freedom of the press was a very cherished civil liberty. Dion's idea was to provoke such an act by having encouraging Wilkes to publish ever more shocking things against George III and against his ministers. So the ministers would, would be forced to react by simply by a desire for, to protect their own in dignity by imposing a, this new act of limiting limiting the press, and as a result, a revolution would break out, and the French would therefore be able to have their pickings of the English Empire. This idea that the English state and the English society is on the verge of collapse is again an idea that the French ministers all believe in at the time. They cannot understand how a land apparently as disorganized and as unstructured and uncentralized as British, how can the system somehow manage to to succeed and to indeed defeat them. So the idea that Britain is on the verge of a revolution is, is common currency in, in French political and ministerial circles at the time. So this plan indeed um, was met with quite a good deal of interest at the time. So Dayon seems to be you know, coming into line. He's coming up with bright ideas for helping the French get their revenge on the English. At this point, a new agent enters the Secre du Roi, none other than the famous playwright Beaumarchais. As a choice of secret agent, um, secret agents in this period tend to either be mo uh, monomaniacs who aren't very bright, and I would put the Chevalier Deon in that category, or uh, brilliant people who are too clever by half, and Beaumarchais is definitely in the too clever by half side. Beaumarchais has himself been publishing things that, are, that the king doesn't like and has spent time in Fort l'Evêque himself, but now he's re released and is indeed sent over to, to London to try and hoover up some of the anti-Pompadour, the king's mistress, and anti-Louis XV pamphlets that French exiles had been publishing in London, exploiting the press freedom in London, using having works published there, and then getting them smuggled into France, and also playing off, playing themselves off against the French court. It was quite common at this time for people like Beaumarchais to be sent over and suppress such publications by bribing the authors, saying, okay, how much money do you think you're going to make with this pamphlet? I'll pay you twice that not to publish it. And indeed, many French expats living in London at the time, such as Thévenot de Morande, had realized that um, you don't actually need to actually write 
the the pamphlet. You just need to threaten to, and then accept the several hundred louis d'or in payment. And indeed, um, Beaumarchais himself realizes this is a great way of making money and does it himself. So threatening to use English press freedom against France is something that, that's happening constantly. And Deon, obviously, in this sense, fits into an established model of London as the center for for bad Frenchmen, wicked Frenchmen. And indeed, this pattern in, continues today. I gather the French surete refers to London as Londonistan because they, they see it as a city where our civil liberties encourage all kinds of dangerous terrorists to congregate. And this this uh, view of London as a hive of uh, nid d'espion, a hive of, hive of spies, was already present before the French Revolution. Up until this point, one of the mysteries about Deon is, is how late rumors start circulating that, that he is in fact a she. We used to think that when he was working out for Catherine the Great in Russia, he was already doing so in female in female dress. We now know that wasn't that wasn't true. Deon was himself reinventing himself in his retirement. He, while he's living with with that widow, Mrs. Cole, he's going through his own papers, adding female female gen, um, gender, the turning eels to elles, messieurs to mademoiselles, and literally sort of forging his own backstory to suggest that he was all along a woman dressed as a man rather than a man who eventually dressed as a woman. And the way, in, so it's unclear who comes up with this idea that one way of getting Deon back safely to England in a way that will make it clear that he won't be punished, a way of convincing him that he won't be immediately thrown in the Bastille, is to, to have him come back as a woman. Because a woman is a way of entirely, well, obviously emasculating him, but also drawing any sting he might have. If, as a, as if Deon published his secret letters as a woman, no one would believe them. They'd say, well, it's a woman, she's just making it up. And, but for on Deon's side, no one could throw a woman into the Bastille. Of course, you don't, you don't do that. So this deal that uh, Deon is going to be repackaged as a woman had benefits for both sides. So Beaumarchais, I suspect that it was Beaumarchais who, who had the imagination to come up with this idea. There had been rumors that Deon might have been a hermaphrodite. It's one of the charges that in the 1760s, Gershi throws at him in one of his many anti-Deon pamphlets. But Deon was accusing him of almost anything at that time, everything and, and everything he can at the time. So it's, it's perhaps not very reliable. Physically, Deon apparently did have very androgynous features. He didn't have much facial hair. So perhaps that kind of physical side did encourage this kind of speculation. Speculation took a financial form in, in, in the early 1770s and that people began betting on whether Deon was a man or a woman. And one of the things that Beaumarchais did to line his own pockets while working as a sequoia du roi agent in London was to take part in the speculation, capitalizing on the fact that he actually controlled the final determination of who whether Deon was a man or a woman, in that he knew Deon would opt to become a woman as a way of getting back to France without facing punishment, and yet managed to delay the, the public announcement of that long enough to sow speculation that Deon was in fact a man, place various bets on the London Stock Exchange. These took the form of life insurance policies, which is how it involved legal contracts. And he also perhaps arranged for Deon to leave London for several months, which called speculation about his gender in 1773 to, to get out of all proportion. 
Another key change that's happened is not only has Beaumarchais been given the job of bringing Deon in, but there's also been a sea change as a result of the death of Louis XV and the arrival of the much younger uh, Louis XVI. And with all that, you change prime minister, you change foreign minister. The new foreign minister, the Comte de Vergennes, is... I'm not putting the bar very high when, when I say this, but he was probably the most intelligent French foreign minister of the 18th century, much more intelligent and much more longer serving than many of, of the other aristocratic nobodies who switched in and out of, of this particular ministerial portfolio in the 18th century. Vergen had inherited, as, as a, inherited in a way, the Sepé du Roi from Breuil, from Breuil from the, the king's former ministers, and Beaumarchais was kind of there to kind of tidy up and try and deal with this hangover from the previous period. Vergen, I think, read Deon correctly, which was that Deon might speak and bark terribly, but that his bite was not nearly so bad. Vergen also, however, was felt that this whole idea of Beaumarchais about having him switch sex was also kind of embarrassing and that it was perhaps best if, if the idea officially could be blamed or credit for, could be given to Deon. As he says here in his letter to Beaumarchais, suggestion must come from his side. We don't want it to come out later that we forced him to put on skirts, because that would again make the French court look ridiculous. Deon insisted as one of the conditions of him agreeing to become a woman, and there was a document called Le tra La Transaction, the, the Transaction, a legal document that was drawn up, in which he said, yes, I will come back to France, I will only be seen in women's clothing, and I will remain quietly on my estates in Burgundy. But one of those conditions in which Deon agreed was that he must have his, his audience, his departing audience, departure audience, his congé, his formal taking leave of the king, which all ambassadors get when they leave a posting, he would he insisted on having that. Vergen, however, drew the line on that. As a woman, of course, he can't be an ambassador, and it would just be ridiculous for both the King George the Third and Louis the Sixteenth to have a woman, even temporarily, fulfilling the role or adopting the pose of a female ambassadress. Still a very ridiculous concept of this time. Surely, Deon realized, I, th I think, the cost of what was, gonna, of what was helping towards him. Um, he tried to get Vergen to agree to let him have his audience de congé by, by emphasizing how much shame or how difficult the role that he was prepared to adopt would be for him. This was, however, refused. Negotiations dragged on. And as a result, it was only in 1777 that Deon returned to France and was formally presented at the court to Marie-Antoinette, and Louis the Sixteenth in women's clothing. This was a huge. To be presented at court was a huge um, sartorial challenge for any woman, let alone a man. And but, however, fortunately, Marie Antoinette lent him her famous dresser and a dress designer, Rose Bertin, to help him prepare for that. So he made a made a very good impression. He thereafter goes back to Tonnerre and lives off his pension until, of course, the French Revolution happens and all royal pensions end. He then comes to Britain and adopt, spends the, the rest of, of his years of health giving fencing displays with a fencing master, the Chevalier Saint-Georges. And obviously seeing a woman fence, and he was a good fencer, a good, sword, good swordswoman, was highly unusual in a perhaps rather unusual kind of freak show kind of way. And he toured the country with Saint-Georges 
until sadly in 1796, while giving a display in Southampton, and as someone from Southampton University, I can get at least mention my town, Southampton University, he's injured in the shoulder when, when one of these displays gets out of, out of hand and cannot fence after that. So his main source of income is lost. He tries to um, keep himself going by selling his beloved library. He's, he thereafter runs through all that money, ends up spending some time in debtor's prison in, the, in his 70s, has a very sad final few years, finally does what all, what all desperate people do if they run short of any other means of supporting themselves, which is sell your life story. He sells his life story to a publisher for 500 pounds, never delivers, and is once again found, finds himself in debtor's prison. Eventually gets out and spends the last few years with Mrs. Cole. So what he does in the last few years is largely, largely bedridden, dies at 81, but spends these years reinventing himself and rewriting his backstory as a her. And also, not only does he forge his own documents in the sense of taking original documents and changing the gender pronouns, but he also does his own historical research into other what he calls femme forte, strong women, such as the Pucelle d'Ognon, uh, Joan of Arc, and other great um, Amazonian figures from the past. And so there's a clear sense that not only is he refashioning his own history as a woman, but he's also inserting himself into a pantheon of warlike, strong women from across history and from across civilization, Amazons obviously not being Europeans. So there is a sense in which he is writing for posterity, trying to create a glorious future for him, but in the past. I think that's a kind of weird conundrum that uh, makes him such a rich, if also slippery and evasive figure for us historians to try to grasp. Thank you very much. This talk was recorded on the 23rd of September 2014 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright at the National Archives. All rights reserved.